0: And so I learned while researching this book that Zachary Taylor was a man of great contradictions, a survivor of multiple wars who was done in by a bowl of ice cream, a slave owner who promoted free soil policies, and in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. And before I sign your first editions of my book, Zachary Taylor, An American Life, I'll take a few questions, yes?
1: Did anyone ever accuse Taylor of being a wino? You know, a Whig in name only?
0: That would have been impossible. The Whig party never formed enough of a political legacy for Taylor to betray.
1: So why did the Whigs keep nominating old generals who died in office?
0: Because the only alternative was to nominate Henry Clay. Are there any other questions?
2: Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, D.B. Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today's episode, President 12, Zachary Taylor. James McRae, you're back. I'm here. Yay. And... Um, so we brought you back because we want to learn more about Zachary Taylor
3: all right well I guess I can I can give you the introduction here so obviously when we talk about Taylor as president you have to talk about why the heck this guy ended up being president at all uh, which of course really comes back to his service in the mexican-american war he had been he had really been an army guy growing up he had actually served in the war of 1812 had served in a number of Wars uh, against Native Americans, for what that's worth, and then finds himself a general in the army as the uh, Mexican-American War breaks out. And he is part of the army that's going to go from Texas and into northern Mexico. And he has a fair amount of success there, um, wins several battles against Mexican forces ends up taking the city of Monterey, and then kind of wins this battle at the Buena Vista, where, remember Santa Ana, Santa Ana the bad guy in Mexico, who... He was um, the president
4: of uh, of the Texian Republic War.
3: Yes. Well, after that whole debacle and Mexico losing Texas, there's a revolution, and he gets exiled from Mexico. Basically, everybody hates his guts, and so he leaves. Well, then the Mexican-American war breaks out and Santa Ana both tells the United States that if they only let him into the country, he will take power and negotiate a peace. Well, at the same time, telling the Mexican government, if only he could take power again because of his military experience, he's going to whip the Mexican army into shape to be able to resist the Americans. And so he's actually, the U.S. lets him back into Mexico, and then he is given the reins of power of the Mexican government, and then he... Does attempt to try to put the Mexican army into fighting shape, but ultimately just faced more logistical hurdles than he could really manage with basically that, you know, I was reading like the Mexican army didn't have enough money on ammunition. And so they never let their soldiers shoot while they were training because they didn't want to waste the gunpowder. And so you can imagine that, you know, even though he's got 20,000 guys against Taylor's 7,500, they're not exactly the best trained or equipped army in the world. They fight pretty hard. You know, it ends up being more or less a draw in this battle, but because Santa Ana's men are literally on the point of rioting, on starvation, Santa Ana decides to go back home and try to get some food. And at that point, Taylor declares victory. And that's pretty much the end of Taylor's involvement in the war. Then there's the other part of the war where the U.S. invades Santa Cruz, or not Santa Cruz, Veracruz. and was that, uh, had-
5: was that General Winfield Scott? That, who Scott. That
3: one? Yeah.
5: So we had... General Winfield's got Old Fuss and Feathers versus Old Rough and
4: Ready.
3: Old Rough and Ready,
4: yeah. It's like, this sounds like the marquee outside the worst burlesque joint in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so
5: there was also... So he was pretty much dispatched to the border, still disputed with Texas, to start a war, was he not?
3: Yeah, I mean if you look at Polk's actions, they were pretty and we talked about this when we talked about Polk. But basically, he was looking to start a war and so some of the, you know, commands that he was, you know, sending out there to all right, well this area area is disputed, but we'll send some patrols out there and if they shoot at us then we can claim blood was shed on American soil and and that whole thing. And so yeah, I think I think Taylor's mission uh, was Take this army down there and annoy the Mexicans enough that we can claim some uh, some right of reprisal, and indeed, that's what happened.
5: He pretty much sent out expeditionary
3: force, kind of sent them out to be killed, didn't he? Because once they were dead, bam, we were at war. I, I don't know if it was so much sent out to be killed. I don't actually know that that many people. I know that in that there was that first engagement, and then. More Americans died than Mexicans died, but it was, it was meant to attract attention. I don't necessarily know that it was a suicide mission, but yeah, it was definitely something where they were pushing the line to see how far they could go to see if they could, you know, stir up some trouble.
5: And once blood was shed on American soil, no patriotic American representative or senator could oppose James K. Pope's call to arms. Arms, well, you know, arms in a light sauce that you would, you know, gnaw on as a snack. But that's a whole different story. Right?
3: <laughs> we should also mention, at least as it pertains to Taylor, that after Taylor went to Monterey, he was told to stay put, and then he just ignored that and continued to go farther south. And so that whole Battle of Buena Vista thing should have probably never occurred because he was disobeying orders, and even advancing that far.
2: But did he win? Did he technically win that
3: battle? Uh, I probably. mean, yeah, technically he did. Yeah. Okay. So early MacArthur,
6: I should say, early MacArthur.
3: <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I think there's some analogies there between MacArthur and Taylor in terms of both kind of being quasi-political while claiming to be unpolitical.
2: And between the Battle of Buena Vista and going to the Alamo, I keep hearing Disney music in my head for some reason. <laughs>
3: <laughs> come on,
2: come on, kids. Let's take over the world. <laughs>
7: Well, I owe to you, too, you wild varmint. Varmin. Varmin.
8: Varmin. Wife, it is an old rough-and-ready himself, General
7: Zachary Taylor. Well, it is. And, uh, you must be the Secretary of War himself, William Macy. Uh, goodness gracious, what brings you to the Mexican border? I took a steamboat to Galveston. Well, I must say, I thought you would have taken a stagecoach. Um, no. Actually, I have a message from Washington. Wonderful, and how are things in Washington? Spring had just begun when I left, so the sewage in the streets was
8: starting to thaw, and the mosquitoes were hatching.
7: Sounds heavenly. I do so love that city, but my wife has vowed that if I ever force her to live there, she will kill me. Um, I guess it's not her bowl of cherries, as they say. Anyway,
8: uh, President Polk says he has faith that you will do whatever it takes to defend America's borders.
7: My stars! he sent you 2,000 miles on a boat to tell me that? Well
8: then, let me put it this way. General Taylor, President Polk says he has faith... That you will do whatever it takes to defend America's borders.
7: Is there something in your eye, Marcy? No, I'm winking at you. Oh, I see. Uh, no wonder Buchanan campaigned for your appointment. Uh, now, my dear Marcy, I haven't indulged in the love that did not speak its name since the siege of Fort Howard. But there's a cat house in Nolens that <clears throat> caters to you, yeah, odd fellow. No,
8: no, General, that's rather off topic. Hmm. Uh, that desert out there is awfully large
7: i'm led to understand the sahara is even bigger
8: yes i'm sure it is but still it would be awfully easy for a patrol to get lost out there wouldn't it
7: i most certainly would if the fool leading that patrol forgot to bring a map or a compass (laughs) oh
8: no doubt but president Polk just wants you to know that he understands something Unfortunate might happen if a patrol got lost and ran into the Mexican army.
7: Well, then, might I suggest you send us more maps and canteens? Uh, it gets awful hot out here.
8: Indeed, the, the, the sun can bake your brain. But, General Taylor, even the most experienced army guide, might lose his way and run afoul of the Mexican
7: government. Well, what the Thunderation would Polk have me to do? Build a big bodacious wall to keep all the Mexicans out? No, that's a stupid idea. What I am trying to tell you
8: is that Mr. Polk will support you in the case of any hostilities breaking out with the Mexican military. Well, I
7: expect no less. I have served my country for two score <sighs> years. I fought the bloody British in the War of 1812. Why? I've worked so assiduously to expand the armed forces that I must have recruited half the boys beneath me.
8: Yes, General. Were there ever a fight with Mexico, President Polk thinks you're the perfect man to command the army. Well,
7: undoubtedly. I certainly hope Young Hickory isn't worried that I'm losing sleep (sighs) over his good opinion. I'd wager half my wages that I've commanded more forts than he's had hot meals. You
8: idiot! I AM TRYING TO TELL YOU THAT PRESIDENT POLK WANTS A WAR WITH Mexico. Mexico. MEXICO!
7: Now why didn't you just say that in the first place?
8: Because President Polk worries it might not be legal.
7: Well, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Hmm, I like the sound of that. <laughs> Maybe I'll run for president someday. <laughs> but what about your wife? My wife can't run for president. She can't even vote. And you call me an idiot. Uh, nope. Well... If I'm not mistaken, that sounds like Santa Ana's Lagoons. It appears that Mr. Pope is gonna get his wish. Uh,
8: Santos be praised. If anyone's looking for me, I'll be in New Orleans.
7: Uh, ask for the House of the Rising Sun. That's mm. S-O-N. I already knew that, General.
5: I'm gonna throw out a really provocative question because that's what yeah. we do here on Democracy Burlesque. Provocative comedy. Outside of Andrew Jackson, I can't think of a single American president who built his reputation on killing people of color quite as much as Zachary Taylor.
3: I think that you're probably right. I can't think of anyone else who quite fits that mold like Taylor does.
4: Count his son-in-law. Jefferson Davis, not a U.S. president,
2: but he did. Briefly, his son.
4: <laughs> yeah, he's
3: well, Jeff, well. Okay, That okay. knows Jeff Davis, who married uh, Taylor's daughter, Sarah, right before she died of malaria. So I guess the other person we should probably put in there is the other Whig president, William Henry Harrison.
5: Who didn't kill did. half as many people as he claimed. Even if it was half the number he claimed, it's a lot. Right. Also, I mean, one is too many. I'm not saying that, but okay, That's let's true. see zachary taylor he gets a start in the war of 1812 and he's not fighting the british he's fighting the british allies out on the western frontier he's fighting yep. the indians he gets famous for not being slaughtered by the shawnee in a, at an indiana fort then he goes on to i don't i don't remember the exact sequence but he was in the Seminole war in florida yeah and then he uh Fought in the Black Hawk
4: War in Illinois. It's actually, I think, the other way around. it's Black okay. Hawk and Second Seminole. I only know this. I did. Uh, I did do a uh, uh, little sketch about
2: it. Awesome. And I, and I have to say, for people that are not watching, it is purely coincidence. I am actually wearing a Chicago Blackhawks hat and drinking out of a Chicago Blackhawks coffee mug during this entire discussion. So, just wanted to clear that up. So, James, correct
3: me
5: if I'm wrong now, Winfield, Scott, and Taylor were both considered for the Whig nomination in 1848.
3: Along with with the eternal politician, Henry Clay. (laughs) It seems like the Whigs are kind of, this is like the period where politics doesn't really make any sense. There's these two parties, the Democrats and the Whigs, both have pro-slavery factions, both have anti-slavery factions. Basically it's a it's a once the Whigs finally center, s- settle on Taylor, even though Taylor really divides the party because he was a slave owner, he was a southerner.
5: But and not much of a Whig, to be honest.
3: No, and he I mean, to the extent that he was a Whig, it was more like he hadn't publicly repudiated certain Whig policies or simply indicated that because he thought that vetoes should only be used for laws that were clearly unconstitutional, that he thought that then the Whigs were like, well, if we could pass these laws, he won't veto them. Like that was the thing with the Wilmot proviso, right? So this is the thing that every eighth grade history teacher has mentioned and no eighth grade student has remembered. Um, (laughs) The Wilmot proviso was a proposal by a member of Congress that slavery should not extend into the territories gained after the Mexican American war. And Taylor basically says, well, if Congress passes the Wilmot proviso, I would not veto it. He doesn't say that he really supports it. He just indicates that his interpretation of the constitution is that he lacks the power to veto it. So yeah, this is basically his entire campaign is, you, you don't know what I'm for and I don't know what I'm for either but I don't really think I should veto anything either. So vote for me. And as a matter of fact, I even have a quote after the after the war and after he's kind of been elevated in, in public opinion, people are asking him, hey, do you want to be like Washington and Jackson and run for president? And he's like, the thought has never entered my head, nor has it entered the head of any sane person. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and this wasn't a humble brag, unlike Harrison, who really kind of wanted it, but always Mm -hmm. sort of played the, oh, Peshaw card all the time. I
5: feel like Taylor did the same thing, although not with the presidency, but he fought pretty hard for his promotions in the Army. He played Army politics, which Uh I guess was a bit of a preparation for national politics. What interests me, looking at this Zoom screen, is how connected Zachary Taylor is to everyone present. Let's see, he was born in your state, Sylvia. He moved to your state, Gina. <laughs> he fought battles in your state, Tommy, and yes. he, and in my state of Illinois, and- uh your state in Texas. That's right. He's all over on my map. He's the reason for your hat, Joe, and James, <laughs> he, his Democratic opponent
2: was the governor of your state.
3: Yes. Yep. Old Louis Cass, who we- That was until a, a stretch
2: that was a stretch to get Ohio into that trip check ball, I have to say, just by using my app. Um,
3: <laughs> until this you year, we Lewis had Cass? a state office building in Lansing named after Louis Cass, but they decided that given the fact that he was a slave owner and by no means the, uh, there's there's plenty of great people from Michigan. I don't really know that Louis Cass is one of them. He just happened to be <laughs> one of the ones who was an early politician so they did rename that state office building and forgive me i don't actually remember who they renamed it to i do believe it was a black politician but i forget exactly what who they were what their contributions were but it was a uh, it was definitely a good move getting rid of the uh cast name from the state office building but yeah he was the the Democratic candidate in that election. Although we should also mention that Martin Van Buren also ran as the Free Soil Party, basically the anti-slavery faction of the Democratic Party, and got like 10% of the vote, which probably pretty certainly doomed Cass's uh, chances there. Michigan will have to wait until uh, Gerald Ford stumbles his way to the presidency for us to get our uh, our man up there.
5: Oh, Gina, how fondly remembered is... Zachary Taylor in Kentucky, if at all.
3: We
9: would go to picnics at Zachary Taylor Park. It's there. Uh, so, you know, he does have some longevity as a name there.
6: The Virginians only count him when we're trying to say we are the, uh, the mother state of the presidency. We just count him as that. Hey, he's one of ours, just like Woodrow Wilson.
5: <laughs> but both really belong to America, not Virginia.
6: Yes, but the rest of America can take him. <laughs> so Dr. Nair, you contend in your book Zachary Taylor had the longest military career of any president at the time. That's correct.
0: He was a highly decorated Whig general.
6: Even more decorated than Washington.
0: Well, He had served longer, but he is considered a war hero.
6: So what was his career like?
0: Well... He joined the 7th in Kentucky in 1808. Marched his men to Camp New Orleans right away. Three years later, got the call from William Henry Harrison to stop rebellion at Fort Knox and restart the garrison. Headed to D.C. as a court-martial witness. Harrison fought Tecumseh, Taylor totally missed it. But he fought the Shawnee leader in the War of 1812. Won a siege, got the first brevet ever for himself. Drove the Sauk tribe back across the Mississippi. Quit when the war ended. 18 15. Came back in 28 for the Black Hawk War Put down one native resistance But then he wanted some more Crossed the country north to south Down to Florida So he could fight the Seminole On Christmas at Lake Okeechobee He used bloodhounds to track the tribes And people said he was so ruthless He could go by old rough and ready Then James K. Polk sent our man to Texas By now we had a reputation not to be messed with So when diplomacy fell through Taylor advanced And his men took back the land Down to the Rio Grand, fought him back at Palo Alto, then Resaca de la Palma, was outnumbered 3-1, to one, but couldn't be calmer. He marched his armies onward to take Monterey, signed a liberal truce after three bloody days. But then Winfield Scott stole half of his men, and Santa Ana started marching his north again. And then on Washington's birthday, Santa Ana attacked. But Taylor's men were inspired and pushed the Mexicans back. He was a war hero, he had defeated the Mexicans, and the Whigs were so grateful, they made him the The President. What?
6: Wow. He really was a war hero.
0: See? Just as I wrote.
6: So how did he die?
0: Eating cherries.
9: So I'm struck by what you're saying in terms of its parallels to our present moment politically, right? And so I wonder if you could speak at all to How unusual is it to be in the kind of circumstance that we find ourselves in now, where there is this perceived uh, separation or, you know, lack of connection between the views that are ascribed to a particular political party and their ostensible leader, um, who then, you know, wins election for that party as the standard barrier of that party? I think that we're having a tendency to be very caught up in our own moment and characterizing that as this complete departure from you know what has happened in the past. But is it really James? Like because you know you're you're kind of talking about the ways in which Taylor is sort of not really necessarily a standard barrier for the party either. And sort of like surprise, here's where I'm going to vote, you know, once he's in office. So I just wonder if you could comment on that in a sort of
3: macro level. It certainly happens. I think what happens is that political parties really want to win, right? And so they promote people or people are promoted within the party who are successful. And then when those people ascend to the top office, and then they, you know, kind of, they obviously show their ability to be electorally successful by being elected president. Uh, it then becomes very difficult for the party to kind of resist the direction that they want to take the party because by its very nature, that's seen as a, a winning policy combination. And so I think a number of places where you could uh, see this, um, you know, certainly Andrew Jackson um, really just kind of on his own reshaped the Democratic Party, which was already kind of leaning that direction. But like, you know, basically Jackson created the ideology of the Democratic Party and, you know, enshrined it into, you know, their existence really up through the end of the Civil War. Um, And then I think you could also point to, uh, it's certainly Teddy Roosevelt, right? Um, And it's interesting how many of these people are kind of accidental presidents. Teddy Roosevelt totally reshapes the Republican Party, introduces it to progressivism, and then through his own uh, electoral success, pushes the party, at least for a time, in that direction, and even Woodrow Wilson, to some extent, with the Democratic Party, you could say the same thing, you know, an internationalist, you know, the Democratic Party had never been seen as the international party before Wilson being a progressive. And then certainly with Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, that was a whole new thing, you know, that, you know, the Democratic Party had never been associated with massive expansion of government before. And now all of a sudden they are. And then, you know, you have people who are kind of nipping around the edges. So even by the, like Ronald Reagan is certainly taking the Republican Party in a, you know, somewhat different direction than it had been going. Richard Nixon obviously was, was more conservative than his Democratic colleagues. And, you know, certainly was very, very friendly with business interests. But the whole, I don't think anyone would confuse Richard Nixon as being a proponent of small federal government, considering some of the stuff that he did. Ronald Reagan obviously kind of reshapes that, although more in ideology than in practice. And then Bill Clinton kind of trying to reshape the Democratic Party and, and put it in a little bit more conservative direction than it had previously existed in in the 1970s and 1980s. Although with, with I think with
2: every single one of those presidents you mentioned, one of the huge differences compared to presidents like Taylor is that every single one of those presidents had a fair or huge amount of personal fame, and so in the you know from Jackson and the Roosevelts and uh, Nixon and Reagan, I'm not sure about Clinton, but certainly in all of those circumstances, the parties at that moment sort of used the candidates so that they could bring the party up with people like Zachary Taylor and Dwight who- Eisenhower. And Dwight Eisenhower, but but people like Taylor, the party kind of took this person and it, it was the other way around in other words. with with Taylor, he may I mean nobody like said, nobody thought of him as president except the political can you know except the party because one of the things that's real that's also really true in this era is how many freaking ballots at the conventions it takes before they finally settle on particular candidates. And that sort of talks about the, the power of the party, which is why they would gravitate to, well, military leaders because they need it to elevate themselves and put themselves in power. Whereas Jackson didn't necessarily need the party. Therefore he could take the party wherever the hell he wanted to.
3: And I think, yeah, I would agree with that for the most part, because I think when those other people that I mentioned pull their parties in that direction, it wasn't really a surprise to anyone that they were doing that, right? It's not like they, I mean, with the possible exception of FDR, who was pretty closeted in terms of what his actual policy was going to be, but clearly wanted to do something different. But you know, uh-huh. most of those people, when they ran for the presidency, they were saying, I'm, I'm different than other people you've seen wearing this party label because I want to do X, Y, and Z that's different. Whereas with Taylor, he literally would not answer questions about <laughs> what his policy was. He, he was the candidate of the Whig Party mainly because the Whig Party was like, well, we put a war hero up once for president and we won. So maybe if we did that again, we could win again. And that was literally the only reason that he was considered to be presidential material is that they thought they could capitalize on his his public fame to win. I actually think that Eisenhower is a good comparison where Republicans have been out of the presidency since 1933. And they're like, well, who the heck do we have who could possibly, you know, that's, that's a public name in high esteem that could win. And,
2: and both parties were hunting for Eisenhower, Mm now both parties right sort of like both parties were trying to get colin powell to run later
3: and both parties were trying to get taylor to run too Mm -hmm. um you definitely see there's an effort by democrats to try to bring him over and and you know, and a lot of Democrats thought that he would be more in their vein because he was a Southerner, because he was a slave owner. And and the fact that he kind of came and, and did this wishy-washy, yeah, I wouldn't veto the Wilmot Proviso, though, I think kind of angered them quite a lot. That's one of those classic m- missteps where you're like, I'm going to try to take a compromise issue, but you're actually just making everybody mad. <laughs> No, no one, no one agrees with your policy. Well, it's at all. not like
2: that was happening all that much in the years before mm-hmm. slavery, after all.
3: Right. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I think that that for for Taylor, his his uh, ascension to political leadership is very much something that is managed behind closed doors. Um, Senator, or excuse me, Governor Crittenden from Kentucky um, is really kind of the the man behind the, um, curtain, if you will, he's the person who really organizes his campaign. Um, he's the
5: Stephen Miller to Taylor's Trump.
3: Yeah. Or, uh, or even, That's a the, little um, harsh. Wait a minute. What can we at least say Rove
2: or, uh, John Favreau? Yeah, I mean, yeah, on, he's, he's the
3: Carl Rove behind, uh, yeah. you know, Taylor's George W. Bush. That's a great way to put it. Um, <laughs> and he's the one who kind of maneuvers him to, uh, political prominence. Um, but yeah, I think that the fact that, you know, it, it is not really uncommon in, uh, American political history for the leader of the party to start pulling the party in one direction or another. I think that actually, and perhaps worryingly, it's those people who come out and are very deliberate about doing that. And I certainly would put, um, put Trump in that category as someone who is deliberately pulling the party in a new direction, tend to be more successful than the Taylor types who are just kind of along for the ride, but basically are uh, are just figureheads for the underlying party mechanisms. And like, I think Eisenhower, right, fits fits the Taylor vein where, you know, he had some interest in national security and and, you know, kind of ran things himself a little bit there. But especially on the domestic front, he was really just like, all right, I don't really care. You know, the people I appointed who are Republicans can run the the domestic stuff.
2: Well, and and which, which he could do because he was fortunate to not have this horrific national crisis breathing down his neck like Taylor did. All of these presidents, again, this era where we're running into the Civil War, which sort of leads me to one question about the parties. Were they simply so in tune with trying to keep power that they skipped over? You know, they simply sort of convinced themselves that, well, we we wouldn't have to, we can manage the whole slavery thing, or was, was there really... I guess it was I guess another way to put it is was there was clearly never a thought at some point of we we just have to have it out, we're just going to try to keep everybody happy so that everybody has a little bit of pie and we'll be and we won't worry about the 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 oven smoking to the point where it's going to burn everything down.
3: The interesting thing is that neither party really ends up kind of coalescing around the issue of slavery. There are you know, Northern Democrats who are either anti-slavery or slavery ambivalent, right? Like if you're a Democrat in Wisconsin and, you know, you're representing a, you know, district and, you know, the dairying part of the state, there's no slavery there. There hasn't been slavery there for 60 years. Unless Why you count you the cows. Us? Right. And um, what part
2: of the state is not dairying in Wisconsin?
3: Probably that the be, northern quarter of it, the part uh, by Lake Superior, but the rest of it is. Uh, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just not really an issue there. But it, at the same time, it's not something where there's a lot of appetite for for anti slavery, right? You know, they're not necessarily saying let's abolish slavery; they just don't give a crap, and you know, it's not affecting them. Um, and it's certainly, it's like, it, you know, there's. The, the greatest misconception is that the, the North was somehow this anti-racist force. People in the North were just as racist as people in the South. And this was clear when, when blacks start to move North and they're resisted, right? You know, you talk about the race riots that erupted in lots of Northern cities in the 1910s and 1920s uh, because blacks were moving there to take industrial jobs and Are being chased out of their homes, are being you know segregated through redlining, and so yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't a lack of racism; it was simply a lack of interest in the issue. Um, And then you know, you know, you do have the the you know, you do have abolitionists, but they're a pretty small constituency. And then for the Whigs, you know, there are you know perhaps more anti-slavery people in in the Whigs. But again, you know, why? Is it, some of them obviously were opposed on moral grounds. I think some of them were simply opposed from a practical standpoint that slavery was a difficult institution to manage, an institution that caused a lot of kind of internal mess. Honestly, an institution that put racial minorities in the country, which they didn't want to see. Um, and an institution that, uh, basically doomed or you know committed any area that embraced it to a you know plantation style agricultural economy and didn't allow the development of manufacturing. Um, and so the Whig Party kind of be is seen as less favorable to slavery, but not not an abolitionist party by any stretch of the imagination. Whereas, and then the Democratic Party is seen as more favorable to slavery, but again, with anti slavery or slavery ambivalent elements in it. Um, and so this kind of just becomes, you know, it's not, there's no really in intentionality there. And then to the extent to which the parties kind of shift ideologically, it, it's more of a shift out of, okay, how can we continue to win elections? How do we kind of, you know, re, re, uh, rebrand ourselves into a a, a more electorally competitive uh, force, uh, which is more of a concern for the Whigs because I simply think their constituency was smaller. Um, And so I, I think that because if it had been a one party was for slavery and one party was against slavery, I think the Civil War probably would have happened sooner because there would have been, you know, more us versus them antagonism Whereas because it's intraparty, it's the guy who agrees with you on five out of six issues, but you're opposed to the expansion of slavery, and he's in favor of the expansion of slavery. Um, and I think it's the fact that it was intraparty that perhaps keeps it from erupting nationally a little bit longer than it did. The lovely
5: Mrs. Taylor, Margaret Taylor,
3: she did not like.
5: She was actively hoping for her husband to lose in 1848.
3: She hated politics. And I'm sure she hated- wasn't the only first lady to feel that way.
2: She also hated DC. Not the first, not
4: the not the first, and not the last. No, although rooting against your husband in a presidential election sort of makes her the Kim Kardashian of her day. <laughs> Just to draw
6: uh, the the my, No trough. one has seen her walking from behind, so we don't know if that question <laughs> analogy There's no paintings of it. And since it was
5: 1850, that might have been a puzzle,
4: not a real...
6: Posterior. But Thank in all
4: you. But we're agreed, in all other ways, a perfect comparison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one for one.
6: Or Those it, nude shots are still scandalous.
7: <laughs>
6: Woman! Yes? Yes.
7: Uh, More ice cream.
1: You heard the man. More ice cream. Yes, ma'am. And be sure to put plenty of fresh fruit on it.
7: Oh, I do enjoy these Independence Day festivities. And I must say, Mrs. Taylor, they are infinitely more enjoyable with you here by my side.
1: Why, Zachary Taylor, uh, your daughter Betty Bliss is as fine a compliment to your arm at these Washington, D.C. celebrations as I could ever hope to be.
7: Yes, well... uh, hmm. She is a bliss by marriage as i had hoped to be blissful in my own Mm -hmm. i will grant you it is infernally hot in this town in july
1: infernally
7: i know you don't like it here why why just the other day a man struck up a conversation with me and as talk turned to politics it became clear he did not know who i was he said he hadn't voted for me (laughs) when he asked if i was a tailor man I told him, well, not much of one. That is, I did not vote for him, partly because of my family reasons and partly because his wife was opposed to sending old Zach to Washington where she would be obliged to go with him. Oh, you never did. I absolutely did.
1: Well, if we were back home on your Louisiana plantation, we could be fanned on the front porch by some of the slaves.
7: Servants, servants you mean, Mrs. Daly?
1: Your ice cream, sir. Zachary Taylor what has become of you just because you're president and you are compelled to live in this infernal swamp instead of back home on the plantation with all of our friends and the balls and the barbecue parties and our 100 servants,
7: (coughs) servants Mrs. Taylor
6: I've also brought your fan Mrs. Taylor since you seem a bit overheated (laughs) well
1: Well, don't just stand there with it.
6: Fan me. You could afford one hundred servants before you were president.
1: Where we are from, servants do not speak unless spoken to.
7: That's enough, Mrs. Taylor. Could I please have some more ice cream
1: and fruit? Don't forget the fresh fruit. Speaking of enough, haven't you had enough ice cream? You know, you could eat some nice, refreshing fruit all by itself.
7: Uh, Truthfully, yes, I have had enough ice cream. uh, But I cannot have you talking that way during these troubled times. It is my duty to hold this nation together, not tear it apart over that southern question.
1: Oh, how you do talk. As if that question did not concern you, concern us intimately.
7: I'll show you what concerns us intimately. Oh, oh <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Give us a kiss. Oh. Now, they didn't call me old rough and ready on the campaign uh, for nothing. <laughs>
1: well, and <laughs> in here, I thought that was because of the Mexican-American War and the War of 1812.
6: You're ice cream, President Taylor. You seem a bit
7: overheated. <clears throat> Delicious, <laughs> so refreshing <laughs> uh, With all that fruit Now, thank you for that suggestion, my dear You don't
6: want to eat too much, Mr. President You, We can't have you getting sick
1: What did I tell you? Did anyone ask your opinion About how much he'd have to eat? No,
7: no, no, she's right I uh, shouldn't have eaten so much ice cream
1: With fresh fruit
7: Quite so Oh, I'm not feeling the best. I think perhaps I'd better, I better lie down. Oh, hmm. hadn't
1: I
6: better go for the doctor, Mrs. Taylor?
1: Oh no, no, no! I'm perfectly capable of taking care of him. <sighs> to the health of old Sack, God bless him. <laughs> <laughs>
5: How irresponsible would it be of us to uh, start speculating that Taylor was murdered?
3: <laughs> you can speculate all you want. I mean, you know, <laughs> we don't really know.
4: <laughs> all right. Well, we have permission, so let's get going. Yeah. yeah. Um, well,
2: then
3: what, what? What
2: is what is the commonly know? What is the common theory of how he left this mortal earth? He it's
3: like it was like he got a stomach infection or something like that, right?
2: I think. Strawberries and ice milk on the 4th of July.
3: I thought it was
6: yeah, cherries.
2: I thought it was cherries. Oh, it was cherries. Okay. Well, maybe was that was ready. it. it was you don't put cherries in frozen dairy, you put strawberries. That's what did it.
6: So for all our cherry ice cream uh loving listeners <laughs> be heated
9: <laughs> uh, ben and Jerry's does have a flavor that's called punchline that has um, bourbon ice cream with cherries in it
2: mm, and of course yeah. the immortal cherry Garcia
9: and I dropped that reference into a podcast in the hopes that they will hear it and either <laughs> sue us or give us money
2: uh Ben and Jerry's yes. or the bourbon manufacturing community
9: any of them I'll well, take we'll any. Have no
2: problem with either one yeah absolutely not free product from
6: either one
5: You're on, dude.
1: Greetings, conspiracy-busting denizens of the internet, and welcome to the next episode of Presidential Conspiracy
5: Theories Today. Uh, Hey, your mic is kind of hot, man. Back off of it some.
1: Yeah. Well, when is this show anything but cold? Sorry, friends, but your loyal host who must keep his her identity secret so as not to be discovered by those who hate the truth.
5: It's a podcast, man.
1: Ably aided by my producer, whom I will call Jim.
5: Because my name is Jim.
1: Is here to expose my newest conspiracy, that the 11th President of the United States, Zachary Taylor, was in fact
5: murdered. Oh, cool, this should be fun.
1: Exposing conspiracies is never fun.
5: But when you do it, they're funny.
1: I have with me, and by with me, I don't necessarily mean actually physically here.
7: The guest is here, man. do Don't expose me, man. you You're under a table in a home basement studio.
1: Your location and identity is safe with us.
7: I hope so, because what I have is going to blow the roofs off of every historian's house in the country. You hear that, Dr. Nair? Um,
5: over a president nobody heard of?
7: And why do you think nobody heard of Zachary Taylor?
5: Because he's obscure? Because
7: he was murdered! Can I explain it to your unlearned friend here whom you call Jim? Because that's my name?
1: Jim is a good man.
7: Proceed. Well, Jim. You know, the way you two make air quotes audible is really amazing. Well, Jim, most people think Zachary Taylor died of internal issues caused by eating fruit and ice milk on the 4th of July.
5: Oh, gross. My grandma gave me ice milk when her social security checks were late. She couldn't afford ice cream. It's like eating store-brand sandwich cookies. Vomit.
1: Right? And who dies from intestinal issues of frozen dairy products?
7: Oh, man, this is scary, but you may have a point. Exactly. For over 160 years, a myth has covered up what may have been the first real assassination of a president in our history.
1: So, who are the suspects?
7: Most signs point to his wife, who hated Washington DC so much she longed to leave it.
1: Okay, suspect one, Mrs. Taylor. What do you think, Jim?
7: It's an extreme way to get out of a house, but I could see it.
1: So, is she the only suspect?
7: If she was, would I be a guest on your show? (laughs) Uh, guys, were are paying for the studio. <clears throat> Suspect two would be the person who would most benefit from Taylor not being in office any longer. His vice president, Millard Fillmore. <laughs> Good old Mill Phil.
1: His name was the perfect cover to hide his nefarious schemes and desires.
7: And vice presidents are notorious for wanting to be president. Otherwise, why take such a thankless and worthless job? Mind blown. Is that all? Please,
5: is that all? Oh, wow. There's more suspects? Who?
1: Oh, (laughs) now you're interested, aren't you, Jim?
7: Maybe. Who else would want Zachary Taylor dead? Well, he was a military man who won battles all over the South and West. So all the armies he defeated had multiple reasons to see him die.
1: A lot of Indian tribes.
7: And the Mexican government.
1: A lot of enemies. A
7: lot of enemies.
1: A lot of enemies. Enemies.
7: Damn.
1: So how can we narrow this list down?
7: I admit I have hit a brick wall on leads.
5: Well, it's easy to figure out who had the most ability to poison ice milk. wives definitely do. Vice presidents can totally find people that can do it and armies are full of biological warfare experts that can slip something into ice milk or cherries. If I were Taylor, I'd eat the fruit first. Anyway, over ice milk, I mean puke city. Why are you guys staring at me like that?
1: You are way too versed on this.
5: No, too much. Didn't I mention my last name is Taylor? Jim Taylor, Zach is a relative. Lock the doors, lock the doors! What?
1: You are not leaving until you tell us everything you know about the death of Zachary Taylor.
7: I think I just did. I gave you a history of the conspiracy. All history is conspiracy. You hear that, Dr. Mayor?
1: And we are here on Presidential Conspiracies today to expose them all.
5: Oh, rock and bye, sweet baby Jesus. As a sound engineer, I am calling this a wrap.
1: To play us out yet? Jim Goodbye,
5: Taylor. and I've seen rain, this has been Presidential Conspiracies Today. I'm Jim Taylor. Yes, that's my real name. Sit down. And I am your handyman of the board.
1: I will make you talk with some ice milk.
5: Grandma, Grandma, I'll be good. I'll be good. If we could generate a few more conspiracy theories before we wrap up. Absolutely. Um, Taylor's cabinet, not the most distinguished body to ever occupy uh, the executive office, was embroiled in something of a controversy over a legal payment to the guy who I believe was at the time secretary of war. The Secretary of Treasurer, the Treasury approved uh, more or less a payment. The British were supposed to compensate some group of Georgians' ancestors for land that, you know, they had expropriated. Obviously, we declared our independence from England. The United States government assumed the debts of the state of Georgia assumed the debts and the federal government assumed the debts of the state of Georgia. And so it kept gaining interest and interest until it quadrupled by the time of the Taylor administration, to a whopping, I hope you're all sitting down, $200,000. Well, in those days. Yeah, in those days, of course, it was a pretty nice payout. And the representative for the Georgia faction was what, Crawford, the Secretary of War, and the person who approved the payout was the Secretary of the Treasury. So, is it possible that someone killed Taylor to stop him from investigating further?
3: I mean, you know, that's one of those, it almost certainly was a corrupt payment and everybody knew it and it just kind of was the way things were and people made a fuss about it, but it was what it was. You know, I I think probably the fact that it became Mm -hmm. that thing that people were most mad about, at least in the Taylor cabinet, was the fact that it got out and it wasn't, you know, kept under wraps because I'm sure, you know, that stuff happened. (laughs) <laughs> Every other day, probably continues to happen. No,
5: so it wasn't the Secretary of War who slipped that oiled cherry to Zachary Taylor.
3: I mean, it could have been. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not ruling anything out.
2: Are you saying, Paul, that that nourishment was not palatable, or was palatable to Millard? Maybe it was too palatable. Mm has
6: pelodium, and the <laughs> Whig Party had tainted cherries. <laughs> well, was Fillmore ever suspected?
3: I really doubt it because I don't think Fillmore wanted to be president.
4: He did want to be vice president, but I don't. But yeah, what kind
2: of man aspires to be vice president? Millard Fillmore. Fillmore. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, we will talk much more about old Can Millard. I- next episode db comedy presents the electables this episode's sketches were written and produced by i
3: i do want to add one one last story in here that i came across um so after he was elected uh you know taylor is is elected and he had to go from his home which apparently at that point was in mississippi to washington You know, in these days, that's going to take a while. So he ends up leaving in late January. Um, And apparently his first stop is going to be a little trip down the Mississippi River to Vicksburg, where there is going to be a public reception for him. And he was supposed to ride on this steamship, the Tennessee. But early in the morning and unbeknownst to anyone, the wrong steamship shows up. The ship that shows up is the Saladin. And it's uh, run by a family friend of Taylor's. And so Taylor and the whole party end up boarding the steamer and going to sleep. And then when they wake up the next morning, someone's like, "Uh, hey, Zach, you're on the wrong ship. And so he just apparently laughs it off and figures oh, well, the Tennessee will catch up at Vicksburg. But the guy who ran the Saladin, the family friend of Taylor, just wanted to be, he wanted the honor of transporting the president elect. So he had snuck in there and, you know, pretended to be the ship to take him. But I'm sure when the Tennessee got to where Taylor was supposed to be and he was nowhere to be found, there was uh, there was some panic there for some time.
5: So we can officially make the statement that Zachary Taylor had a problem with the steamer.
3: Yes. It may have been the only person who, as president or president elect, was abducted. Well, but- You know, it's
9: really about the fact that no Kentuckian, with any self-respect, is going to get on something called the Tennessee. Like, let's just it there.
4: I was just thinking, like, if he was that nonchalant getting kidnapped, it's a wonder he didn't die sooner.
2: But the Disney movie they made of this with Don Knotts as the captain and Dean Jones as Zachary Taylor, fantastic, really funny. I I stunned Paul at that one. (laughs) I'm trying to remember, trying to remember. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It didn't exist. Well, what we can't we... prove it exists. That's right. That's right. It may actually... That's true. Anyway, so the
6: archives With the footage of Fantasia.
2: Oh, are you <laughs> suggesting
4: that Don Knotts killed President Zachary Taylor? Is that the conspiracy?
5: I think it would be pretty difficult for Don Knotts to have killed Zachary Taylor since he was born after born after Taylor's death. But as you know, the movie Pleasantville proves Don Knotts has supernatural powers and is actually a
4: quite
5: well, it? Is is it? Is it, is it
3: john Tyler that still has like a living grandson?
2: I believe it is. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think he might have passed away.
3: During I think both. he passed. Away yeah, although in the we last year,
2: we in the DB comedy family do have someone who is I think a seventh cousin of uh, wow. Mr.
3: Tyler. I think I've mentioned this before, but I, I had a substitute teacher, Mr. Fillmore, who was a a direct descendant of Millard. Oh, wow.
5: Very and, brave uh, of him not to change his name or her name. Well,
3: you know, and in the in the true Fillmore tradition, the fact that he was the descendant of Millard Fillmore was the first thing he told every class when he walked in. And of course, course he was a
5: substitute teacher. No
4: one's going to yes. hire him yeah. to teach.
3: Yeah, He never aspired to be a teacher. He only aspired to be a substitute
2: teacher. He he (laughs) only takes office if a teacher has gastroenteritis. Yeah. And on that note, to quote Mr. Knotts, we're going to nip this one in the bud. (laughs) DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bukola, Sandy Begowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Bolton, Patrick J. Riley. And Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Baikowski, Paul Moulton, Sylvia Mann, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. This episode's historian, James McCrayo. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. The Electables concept created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy, the electables, visit DB Comedy's website dbcomedy.com, DB Comedy's host page at simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like.